the underdog coming from behind to win the victory is an incredibly compelling story. It might be, it could be, your favorite basketball team down three to one in the finals to then come back to win three straight games and another championship for the city. It could be the small mom and pop shop that uses their family feel to best the competition. It could be the startup nation fighting for freedom and independence as they blaze a new path. These are all compelling stories, especially when the very things that appear to be the underdog's greatest hindrances become the underdog's greatest strengths. And all one has to do is tap that inner potential to then become the true champion. This morning we come to the account of David and Goliath and the underdog digging deep within himself to win victory is not what this is about. Now, does the story have an underdog? Certainly it does. Does the small guy defeat the much larger menacing challenger? Yes, he does. But let's be clear from the start. Victory does not come by looking deep within himself to the innate strength that he possesses, turning apparent weaknesses into his very greatness. No, for David, victory comes because of his great God. Main point from today's sermon, from our passage, from 1 Samuel chapter 17, we see that even in the worst of situations and circumstances, with God and his power, there is always strength for the fight of faith. I'll repeat that again if you're taking notes. Even in the worst of circumstances, with God and his power, there is always strength for the fight of faith. Join me and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 17, where we look at, once again, this famous story of David and Goliath. Now, the books of 1 and 2 Samuel record the early days of God's Old Testament people, Israel, as they transition towards being a monarchy, that is being a people led by a king, being a people led by the king, an earthly king, that is. Samuel, the prophet, whom the book is named after, he plays a huge role in this book here. He anoints Israel's first king, that is King Saul. And then, not only that, though, but he anoints Israel's second king, that is King David. And really, those three people, you have Samuel, you have Saul, and then you have King David. Those are the three main characters that, that really are highlighted in First and Second Samuel. When we think about First Samuel 17 and the context of the book, the events that's going on, stuff that we've looked at in the past, we find ourselves at a very interesting point in kingdom history. In our previous chapter, God had rejected, he had actually rejected Saul as king. We saw there that Saul, he doesn't actually care about God uh, leading him, and so he rejects God, he rejects God's word. And God rejects Saul as king. He is certainly not a person fit to lead God's people if he doesn't care about God's word. But you see that God was preparing for himself and for his people another king. In the unexpected shepherd boy, David, whom God says is a man after his own heart. This David is anointed by Samuel and David is not king yet. But we know that eventually the time will come when all of Israel recognize his kingship. But as you compare these two kings, so you have Saul and then you have King David. As you compare compare them to, you really see the difference of characters. You see the difference of hearts there. And we're going to see this played out again in our chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 17. And looking at these kings, we see what God is after. He's not after a man who simply looks like he can lead God's people, who fits the part by appearances. He's after a man who sees his own need to be led by God. He's after a man who listens to and trusts in the Lord. Christian, I hope you remember that there is great significance in this passage for us today. So don't be tempted to think like this stuff that happened so long ago, that's just sort of ages past, doesn't have anything to do with me. No, there's actually great significance for us today, and there's a lot of different reasons. Number one, as we mentioned before, when it talks about the starting of the throne of Israel... 
Ultimately, we have to remember that this is talking about the starting of the throne of your king. That is Jesus Christ, at least in the earthly sense. And when we look at the failures of Saul, for example, the passage calls us to look and long for the one true and righteous king. But then as we look at the successes of David, right, we see his righteousness to some degree here. We see that he evidences some degree of godliness, right? We have to remember that it's Christ that embodies it to the full. And so once again, whether you're looking at the successes or the failures, we should be longing for the one true king that is Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Without his righteous and loving rule, without God's saving rescue from our sins, we would be forever lost, right? We all need a king over ourselves, don't we? you're visiting us and know yourself not to be a Christian, what I mean is that we've all been created in the very image of God, designed to have a relationship with him. Where God himself, you know, he, he, he gave us his loving rule. He gave us his faithful presence. And he also gave us his righteous law. And all of those things we were to live under so that we might reflect his glory to the watching world as his people. But unfortunately, the Bible says here that we rebelled against God. That fatherly presence that God had promised, we didn't really much care for. The righteous law that he provided, that he had uh, drafted himself and given us, well, we sort of threw that off. We determined what was right and wrong for ourselves because we frankly didn't want God ruling over us. And that loving rule that he once exercised, we actually considered that to be chains, chains of slavery. And so in our sin, the Bible says, we've been seeking to throw off this God or to dethrone God from the very beginning. All of that goes, in, goes on in our own hearts. That's the very nature of sin. We want to rule. But we don't really care much for God's rule. This is sin, the Bible says, rejecting God in effort to be gods unto ourselves. And such sin, such treason is worthy of judgment and death, even judgment in hell, the Bible says. Now, if you know yourselves well enough, you know that this sin evidences itself in all sorts of bad ways in your own lives. We see the wicked rule going on in our own hearts. We see this going on inside of us. We run, our, we run away from our very creator and straight towards judgment. But the wonderful news is that even though we had rejected God, even though we had sinned against him, God himself provides a way out. So where we could not save ourselves, God sends Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, to rule and to save sinners, where we couldn't rule and couldn't save ourselves. Where we were unrighteous, Jesus Christ is the righteous one, lives a perfect life. Where we deserve God's wrath for our rebellion, Jesus Christ bears that wrath for his people on the cross. And so the judgment that was to be ours is then lifted off of us christ bears that upon himself three days later he gets up from the grave showing that payment has been made no longer is it needed for those who repent of their sins and believe it is completed and now those who call upon the name of the lord the bible says will in fact be saved they will be forgiven of their sins declared righteous brought into a new relationship with god and adopted into his family that's new life with your creator so, friends, as we get into this story about Israel's early kings, keep in mind that these kings, in their strengths and in their weaknesses, they point us to our very own need to have a king over us, to deliver us, to save us. Not from an earthly threat of a Goliath, but to deliver us from the forces behind all evil, ultimately, that is sin and Satan. And such deliverance, such forgiveness, such right relationship with your creator is for you too. If you, would return, if you would turn away from your sins and to God, you would believe on him, trust in him to be the one to deliver and save. If you want to learn more about that, I'd be happy to talk to you more about that at the back of the door. Maybe we get together and study the Bible or we can hook you up with another person so that you could do the same. We want to hold out exactly the things that God has held out to us. That is free salvation by grace through faith. From our passage today, once again, we see that even in the worst of circumstances, with God there is always strength for the fight of faith. If you look there at 1 Samuel chapter 17, our chapter opens up with Israel in a very grim situation. 
you look there in verses 1 to 10, you, you see there that we see the threat. We see the threat. It's the Philistine army, actually. You look there at verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. Here the Philistines are once again hounding Israel, just as they had been in, in, in chapters previous. This time, though, they're encroaching from the southern direction. They're encroaching upon Israel's land, Israel's territory. And they are, look there in verse 1 again, they are at this place called Soko, which belongs to Judah. Right? So they're really invading there. And they're wanting to wipe Israel off the face of the earth, or at the very least, subdue and enslave them. And so they face off for battle. The Philistines come up on the, the southern ridge. You've got this valley in between, and then you have Israel lined up as well. So you have the Israelite army and the Philistine army. But all of that is just set up. It's just set up. It's set up for this one specific threat, the Philistines' secret weapon, Goliath the champion. You look there at verse 4. It says there, And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion, named Goliath of Gath. Just imagine the scene there. You have the Philistine army lined up for battle against the Israelites, and as they all line up for battle against Israel, the soldiers sort of clear the path for Philistine, for the Philistine, Goliath the champion, to come through. I mean, you don't even need any details about who Goliath is yet to feel the weight of this, this tension here that kicks off this passage here. He is Goliath, the champion. I mean, some people want to write away, uh, they want to write off some of what's going on here. Um, They want to say, oh, you know, Goliath, you know, he might have had some sort of form of gigantism and this and that. And the reason why, let me just blow the story for you if you don't know, in the end he loses and David, the little guy, wins. They want to say that, you know, David, David's doing this and that. And Goliath, he really struggles with gigantism and he can't really walk that well and he can't see that well. That's so not clear from the story here. Well, that's not, that doesn't even exist in the story. He is actually a champion, it says in English. There's a reason why the whole Philistine army is putting forward this particular man. You don't put, put forward a blind, bumbling man to be the champion, to call out this one-on-one battle and to say, you'll see later on. Uh, actually, we just looked there right now. Look there in verse 9. I mean, this guy, this champion, he says, if he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. This guy is a competent soldier here. He is a champion of war. It's one thing to be a champion in Marvel Puzzle Fighter or a champion, let's say, of Minecraft or a champion even in Jiu-Jitsu. But it's another thing altogether to be a champion of hand-to-hand combat to the death. I repeat that just because we're supposed to enter in here the stress, the tension, the weight here that all of Israel feels as they face off before this man named Goliath. Again, this is a one-on-one battle to the death. And these are no small stakes involved. Not only does the loser die, but if Goliath wins, all Israel will become slaves of the Philistines. If Israel wins, again, the Philistines are supposed to be slaves to the Israelites. At least that's what Goliath taunts. Don't know how serious this is actually going on, but nevertheless, this is what Goliath threatens. This is a bad situation facing off with this battle champion, but it actually gets worse. It actually gets worse. We're told that this champion is who he is, right? The, the Philistines part. You see this This massive giant sort of come forward. And then let's see what the Israelites see. Let's see what the Israelites see. Look there at verse 4 to 7. And he's really specific here. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span, or basically nine and a half feet. He's a real giant. And then you look there at verse 5, you can just imagine, right, as our eyes are gazing upon this battle champion that might smash us, and then the way that the account reads, you're sort of given this account of everything that this guy is wearing, how huge he is, how beast mode he is from the top down. You look there, it says that he had, in verse 5, he had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, sort of like these, these metal rings that were all tied together, basically that formed armor. 
He was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. It's 125 pounds. Now, just imagine if all of us were part of the Israelite army. You recognize that Goliath is carrying your weight just in his armor. Verse 6 there. And he, had a, and he had bronze armor even on his legs. So you look at the head, you look at the coat of mail, and then you look at his legs. He has bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze. You know, we don't quite know what this weapon is, but there's a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear, so he has this javelin type of thing as well as a spear. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. You're looking at 15 pounds just for the head of this thing. And his shield bearer went before him, right? This is really bad. You're looking at his height. You're looking at his strength. You're looking at his armor. You're looking at his weapons of warfare. But then it gets even worse. You think that you feel small already, right? Just thinking about this guy. Then just imagine hearing what the Israelites hear. You hear Goliath's relenting taunting, his mocking and his defying. This is like the psychological warfare. Look at verse 8. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. There is no hope, it seems, with, the Goliath, with Goliath and the Philistines towering over Israel. The circumstances here are dire. So naturally, then, what do the people do? Look at verse 11. They fear every last one of them. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Again, by all appearances here, there is no hope for Israel. Their very own king is dismayed and fearful as well. And if there is anyone that we would think that would be able to at least stand a chance against this Goliath, it would be actually Saul. There's no reason to think that Saul was as tall as Goliath, but if you guys remember, we know that he is at least a head taller than all of the other Israelites. You know that he at least looks like the part of a king to lead the people, which means he's probably quite strong. But here, Saul, he's not doing anything. He's not even saying anything, at least thus far, in the way the narrative is written. He is silent. He's fearful. Not stepping up and so, of course, the uh, the people are going to do the same. Of course, they too are not going to step up. The threat is too great. It is too big. It is too overwhelming to take on. We've seen God's people face such difficult circumstances before. If you think about the Old Testament, you have Abraham and Sarah and their infertility back in Genesis. They wrestle with that. They're fearful of that. God had told them a whole nation would come from them, but yet they are infertile. And so they fear and they make all sorts of mistakes. They, they, do, they, they struggle with this fear, even though God had already promised that a kingdom of people would in fact come from their line. You think about Israel in the Exodus as well. When Pharaoh and his stampeding army were right up on their hills and right before them was this, the sea. How in the world are they going to pass this sea? And what's going to happen with Israel chasing up right behind us? They, they too wrestle with fear, even though God had promised to bring them to the land of promise. You think too about Israel in the book of Numbers when God had delivered them out of Egypt. This is after the Exodus. He brings them right up to the cusp of the promised land. But they can't take the land, they think, because they see that there are giants living in the land. And so they shrink, even though, once again, God had already promised to give them this land. When it comes to Saul and Israel, friends, Goliath and the Philistines was too big of a threat for anyone to overcome. So they thought they judged by appearances that Goliath would prevent them from acting in faith, given God and what he had said. Friends, as we seek to apply this passage to our lives, it is here that we have parallels for our Christian life. It is here that we have parallels for our Christian lives. Now, I am not saying, right, we all face our metaphorical Goliaths in our lives, like anything that stands in our way of self-fulfillment, we're going to call that a Goliath. 
all the haters out there that, that are trying to hold me down from realizing my true potential, that's a Goliath. Those people out there who are trying to keep me from sealing the sales deal, like that's a Goliath. And, and we're going to say this story is about us conquering our Goliaths if we just have faith, just like David did. That is not what we are talking about here. I'm not saying that the solution in the face of our metaphorical Goliaths is just to have a little bit more faith in ourselves or God and everything will work out. That sounds, friends, more like the prosperity gospel as opposed to the real gospel. We should not apply the Bible in that way. We want to let the sermon application be tied to biblical passages and themes in their contexts, in their context. Otherwise, we're just left saying things like Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, including like being a billionaire or whatever else it is that we feel like we should do. Like get into Cambridge University or Oxford University. I could do all things through Christ who strengthens me. No, actually Paul in context is saying I can live or face death and I can do Christ. I can do all things with Christ who strengthens me, including die, including take my very last breath. So you, you, you want to make sure that here the biblical application is actually tied to the passage in its proper context. God had actually told Samuel that King Saul would protect the people from the Philistines, 916, 1 Samuel 916. And so as we read, we're supposed to be thinking, yes, all Saul needs to do is just believe in God who is strong. That's all he needs to do and needs to act in faith to do what God commanded him to do. Here in this passage, though, we don't see him doing that. We, see, we don't see him actually acting according to faith based on what God had said, his eternal declaration. He had already said to Samuel once again that, that Saul was going to protect his people. But then what happens here is that he struggles. He's not acting in faith. He's not trusting in God. So as we apply this to ourselves today, we have to think, what has God actually promised his people? What has God actually promised his people? Has he promised you that you would have the career that you yourself think is best for you? No. Has he promised you that you would live to a certain age that you think you would like to live to? The answer is no. Has he promised us anything, actually, in terms of, let's say, what we think might be the comfortable life? The answer is no. What he has promised us is a future inheritance, not of land, but a spiritual inheritance, which 1 Peter 1 says is kept in heaven for us. What he has promised us, to those who are Christians, who have repented of our sins and believe, he has promised us eternal life with Christ. He has promised us a life free from the power of sin. Not that we would never sin, but freed from the power of sin. He has promised us that even after death, we would rise again because Christ has risen already. He has promised us that just as Christ defeated Satan, so we too can have victory eventually in the new life. We can even know this salvation now because of everything that Jesus Christ did on the cross. And friends, we will know it to the full when Christ returns. Those are just some of the main things that God has, in fact, pro promised us. But in this life, we know that there are things that we face that we too judge to be just too big of an obstacle, too great of a threat. Things that seem to prevent us from laying hold of what God says he has, in fact, won for his people. What are those things? Well, friends, let me just ask you, what do you struggle with in your Christian walk? What discourages you in your Christian walk? Think of first our sinful selves, our sinful selves and the temptations that come from within. I mean, aren't we discouraged having sinned yet again? And we wonder, surely my sin is too great an obstacle for God's love and his grace and his mercy. Or we wrestle with something like death or sickness and the other effects of living in this sinful world. And we might wonder, with this suffering before me, will Jesus or death have the final say? Take persecution. Will these trials and tribulations that we experience for the faith keep us from eternal life in Jesus Christ? Will we, one actually, through this persecution, be separated from the love of God in Jesus Christ? And so in the face of these types of things, we feel as if there is no hope and that we will not 
lay hold of all that God has promised us in Christ. And so we too, right, we know what it's like to be greatly afraid and dismayed in the face of these things. We don't face an earthly Goliath, but we understand the Israelites' fear. Well, as we move on here in this account, what is the answer? What is the answer? Look who enters into the scene in verse 12. I love how it reads. You know, you got all this fear, and then all of a sudden, verse 12, now David. So we're here. We enter into the story here. Now David, he goes on here. This is God's next king for his people. He's not official king yet. He's still the guy who's taking care of his sheep. That's what we read here. That's the capacity in which we truly meet him. In this section, we meet him shepherding sheep. Just go ahead and skim down from 12 to 18 as I, as I speak here. In this section, we meet him still shepherding sheep. He's also serving his family by bringing food and other things to his three older brothers who are already on the battlefield with Saul. If you look there at verses 17 uh, to 23, I'll go ahead and read those. And Jesse said to David, his son, take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these 10 loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these 10 cheeses to the commander of their thousands. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left with the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before, and David heard him. Fascinating here to get this picture of David, the king, the one that prefigures and points us to Jesus, the true king. Well, I mean, what a picture we get of David. He's so different from Saul, who, according to the account, once again, is not doing anything. David, though, he's a helper here. He's full of zeal. He arrives at the encampment, and then in verse 22, it's almost as if he ditches the bags in order to get up on the ranks, and he's eager to see what's going on. Saul and the Israelites are frozen with fear, but then David is eager to stick his nose in some very kingly business. And then verse 23, again, I'll repeat that here. We're kind of leading up to this climax of tension. As he talked with him, behold, the champion came out again, and David heard him. First time David's hearing this. Forty days, Goliath had come out. That's what it says there in 16. For 40 days, this Philistine did this, right? Morning and evening, he's, he's doing this. He's calling out this war cry, threatening the people. And then all of a sudden, David hears this for the very first time. What's he gonna do? If you look there in verse 25, well, let's go ahead and look at 24. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, that is the Philistine, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. Interesting. David arrives upon the scene. The men are sort of having this conversation on their own. The men are saying, yeah, you know what Saul's going to do? Saul's going to make this guy rich, enrich him with lots of riches. Uh, As Jeremiah said, as we were talking about this passage, this is basically uh, get rich, get famous if you kill this guy. Get rich and get famous. But what is God's future king? What is his response to this? Right? Saul is offering a bit of earthly glory But with the potential of such glory and riches, David's response is so telling. Look at there, verse 26. What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine? This is David talking. And takes away the reproach from Israel. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Do you see what's going on there? Saul offers earthly glory for the man. But what is David's heart about? It's actually all about defending the glory and honor of God. What does David, in his mindset, in his worldview, what does David bring to this very moment for the Israelites? 
What's fascinating here is that we have no words of David until this point, at least according to the narrative. This is David, King David's very first words in all of 1 Samuel. And what is he talking about? He's talking about defending the honor of God against this uncircumcised Philistine here where Israel has no hope, right? What does David himself bring to the situation? Israel is sort of cowering, judging by appearances, Goliath's height, his stature, his strength, his armor, his weaponry. There is no hope. But David brings God to the situation. Isn't that fascinating? He's concerned, once again, about the reproach of God's people. He's concerned that this Goliath and all the Philistines defy the living God. He is, once again, all about the honor of God. Do you see the problem with Israel? This Goliath and the Philistines, right, they are actually dictating Israel's worldview, aren't they? The Israelites are actually just like the Philistines. Do you get that? In worldview. The Philistines, they define themselves first and foremost in relation to other men. The Philistines with Goliath are saying, ah, look at us, I'm strong and you're weak, ah, therefore you're going to be our slaves. And so they fear, or not the Israelites fear, the Philistines are feeling like champions. They're very proud. They have hope. They have confidence. The Israelites are actually just like them. They use the same worldly grid that the Philistines do. They look with their eyes by all appearances, living by sight and not by faith. They see the Philistine and they think, man, you really are strong. We really are weak. What can we do but fear? That's, that's, the world, that's the world's world view, the way that the world looks at the world. David, though, though he is not a strength, strong man who boasts in his strength, he views the world in a very different way. He doesn't see himself and the Philistines and the Israelites first in relation to, to, to man, but he sees everybody in relation to Yahweh, God over him, God with him. Therefore, Goliath is not primarily a fierce war champion, who carries 145 pounds plus of armor and weaponry, ready to smash and subdue all Israel. No, to David, Goliath is a defier of Yahweh himself. This is actually what's repeated over and over and over again in the narrative. You look there at verse 10. You see there in verse 10, you could circle that there in your Bibles, and the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this very day. You look there at verse 25. You know, the men here are speaking about Goliath. Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. You look there again at verse 26. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And then you look there again. It's mentioned in verse 36. And then again, it's mentioned in verse 47. The fact that Goliath is a hater of God. All of that is communicated in the phrase uncircumcised Philistine. He's not against uncircumcised people. Circumcision was a mark of God's people. And we know that Goliath was a hater of God's people. He, later on, you're going to see that he calls down curses by his gods in order that people would die. And so very much when you see that there's Goliath and then David, it really is in many ways a battle of the gods, so to speak. The so to speak gods, the so-called gods of Goliath versus Yahweh. God over David, God over Israel, and God with them. David seems here to be the only one among Israel living with an understanding of God over him and God with him. That's what he brings to the situation. It's an entire interpretation of life, isn't it? Friends, we need Davids in our very own lives too, don't we? especially when we are discouraged by our own sin or the effects of living in this sinful world, right? The effects are against persecution for our faith. We need friends to speak and simply remind us, what about God? Is God still God in this situation? What does it mean for you, Christian, as you struggle? What does he say about everything that you're going through? And what has he said and done in Jesus Christ? And how are we called to faithfulness in Jesus right here, right now? Christian, I wonder, do you see your own need to have a friend and counselor like David? We all need a big dose of God, right? A dose of a biblical worldview. All of us, pastors included. 
So let me ask you, who have you enlisted to bring God into your life? Or better yet, bring you before God to remind you that you live under him when you are tempted to wander away, when you don't see so clearly that God is with you. Let me encourage you to find other members of the church who can, in fact, serve you in this particular way, who can bring a biblical worldview to your life in every single moment of fear when there is something that you feel stands in the way of the eternal life that God has promised you for those who repent of their sins and believe. Find a friend to help you remember God in those situations once again so therefore our minds can be transformed so we can see again who God is and know how to please Him and to act in faith. Who are those people for you? If you're a member of this church and don't have those people around you, let me encourage you to find another member in this church and ask them, would you please help me? It's a really odd conversation to have, but let me just encourage you just to go ahead and have it. You say, friend, I need a friend right now who can remind me of biblical truth. And that's actually, to some degree, what I did with Danny. He might have been like 22 years old. I went to Danny Lou. Is Danny here? There's Danny. I don't know if you remember this conversation. But we were at his apartment at UCI, and I just said, I need a friend right now, because I was really trying to work through a lot of different stuff. And that was the conversation I had with him. It was kind of awkward, I admit it, but that is absolutely what I needed. And you see here that David actually has this wonderful friend, so much so in in this man named Jonathan, as we're going to see soon, that he says that that they are so like-minded, of the same heart and of the same mind, and they have the same God, and they establish their close relationship. Let me encourage you to establish these discipling relationships and just biblical godly friendships and folks i pray that you yourself would want to be like david for others i pray that you would want to be like david for others to help others remember who the lord is because if we don't we forever leave people in great fear and dismay we leave them in hopelessness as we face trials and tribulations in this christian life aim to be that christ-centered friend that brings Christ and his word into all situations. Aim to bring others to Jesus Christ because with him there is always hope. There is always strength for the fight of faith just as he himself faced trials and tribulations and remained faithful to the Father and now his very own spirit dwells within us. And we all have that wonderful opportunity to remind others that the very spirit of Christ dwells within us and so we can act in faith. When it comes to living in Christian community, this is one of the main tasks of the Christian. This is how we as Christians encourage the faint-hearted and help the weak and even admonish one another as the case requires. Even if people struggle to grasp those truths, we are to remain faithful. What's interesting is that there are people around David who struggle to grasp it. They don't immediately believe. They struggle just like we struggle. I mean, take his older brother, for example. We're going to see how he responds. Look there at verse 28, right? David, thus far, he's like, he's all about the honor of God. Who is this guy that he should defy the armies of the living God? Look at verse 28. Now, Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness. I know the presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, what have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. I mean, here, David's older brother accuses him. David's all about the honor of God, but Eliab says, you had a heart not set on the honor of God. You have a heart set on selfishness, some sort of wrong motives. I mean, David hasn't even volunteered to fight Goliath yet, but his brother just seems so out of tune with what David is about, the honor of God. And then you take Saul, look at 31 to 32. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul and he sent for them. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. For you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. David's willing to go, but Saul says he's just simply too inexperienced. You see all the people around him that, that aren't in tune with what, he, what he's after. That is the honor of God. His older brother rejects him. Saul rejects him. Of course, we know that Goliath is going to say eventually that he's too weak 
you look there at 42, when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth. And then if you look over there in the next verse at 43, and the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? He says, why do you even bother with me? He's getting written off by so many different people. But where everyone writes David off because they are judging by appearances, David continues. He refuses to let it go because his confidence is in God. Look here at 34 and 37. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For that the reason is he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. You see there that he's refusing to let it go here. In verse 37, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from this Philistine. It's almost as if he says, look, you may write me off, but you can never write off the Lord. Saul, though, he doesn't seem to understand. You look there in verse 37, you got to wonder if this is like a joke. End of 37, and Saul said to David, go, the Lord be with you. But then in 38 to 39, if you skim there, it looks like Saul's still operating off of the world's worldview by sight. It's almost like in this section, Saul clothes David with the same armor as Goliath. Goliath has a helmet of bronze. David, you need a helmet of bronze. Goliath has a, a, you know, the armor of chainmail. David, too, needs chainmail. Goliath, we know, has a sword. We're going to find that out soon. And David, too, he, he needs a sword as well. And David, he's just like, what are you doing with these things? I'm not going with any of these things. I've not tested all of them, any of them. Verse 40, then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the book, brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. So here, we are getting to the climax here. We're going to battle here. David descends on the valley. Goliath descending on the valley. David has his stones. He has a sling in hand. Now, I grew up hearing that the first stone was faith and the second stone was hope. And then the third stone was love and blah, blah, blah. No, there's just stones. That's all they are, just stones. He's going to battle. Let's see what happens next as we go to this climax. Verse 41. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give you your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied this day. The Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with a sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. That is is epic language. It's not Goliath that alone has these awesome words, right, to, the fellow, to his uh, opponents here. David himself in 45 on. I mean, those right there, and you see what he's about. Again, Goliath has defied the armies of the living God, Yahweh himself. Look there at verse 48. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. And so it is over. Just as David said that the Lord would give Goliath into his hand, so God did. Not with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but in the name of of the Lord. Look there at verse 50. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. 
Then David ran and stood over the Philistine, took his sword, drew it out of the sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. You see what this is about. It's not about the underdog looking deep within himself to find strength. It's not about seeing his own weakness as inherent strengths to defeat the champion, even though a very well-known New York Times bestseller wants us to believe that. It's about the servant of the living God acting in faith in his living God. That's what David's all about. You see this in David's three speeches here. You look over at the first speech in verse 17, verse 26. Let's just go ahead and review. You see what the king, the soon-to-be king, is talking about here. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? The second speech. Look there at 17, 36, and 37. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. You look at the third speech in 17, 46, and 47. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know what? That there is a God in Israel. And what else? And that all this assembly may know what? That the Lord saves. You can't help but think back to the Exodus. That God would display his glory against Egypt and Pharaoh so that the whole entire world would know that there is a God over Israel and that the Lord saves. That's the point. It's not about looking within, but actually looking without to the Lord overall, to the Lord with us. As Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24 says, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord. As one author wrote, it's not about David's skill, but about Yahweh's adequacy. And that's exactly what compels David to act in faith despite Goliath and the Philistines. And for us, looking back on God's steadfast love in Jesus, who died on the cross for our sins, we too know his adequacy. We too know the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. We too know the satisfaction that is in Christ. And friends, we too can act in faith, even in the face of trials and tribulations. In the face of our sin, what helps us endure to the end? In the face of persecution, what helps us endure to the end? In the face of living in this sinful world, what helps us endure to the end? Given God has already given us his son, surely he will give us all things. Even when there seems to be no hope with God, there is always strength to act in faith. As the Bible says, salvation belongs to the Lord. Isn't that the lesson of the entire Bible? What is it that Israel sang, Moses sang, after God had delivered them from the hands of the Egyptians? Exodus 15, 2, the Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? And then, of course, as the Exodus pictures an Exodus out of sin, What is it that Zechariah said in the arrival of the Messiah, the chosen one of God to deliver his people from darkness, as Jason has been preaching to us from the book of Luke. Luke 1, 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Friends, do you feel that there are things standing in the way of the future salvation that God has promised you in full? Do you feel like your own sin trips you up in daily sanctification? Or if you're wrestling with just living in this fallen world, what do we need to do in those very moments when we too seemed overwhelmed, thinking that maybe we won't reach fellowship with God and life with Christ? 
Well, friends, we need to remember that salvation belongs to the Lord. And we simply need to act in faith in our God. Not to defeat our own Goliath so we reach our true potential, but to endure to the end and receive the crown of life that Christ has promised to us. With Christ, there is always strength for faithfulness. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you that the very word faith and the exercise of faith casts us to the one that we have faith in. With you as strong as you are, what else is there to do but believe and to obey? Father, you are powerful, you are wise, you are knowledgeable. You are God over all, and how amazing is it, so confidence-filling, that you are with us. Lord, we pray that we too would know here as we reflect on this story of David and Goliath and really Israel in general, we pray, Lord, that we would know that throughout the pages of Scripture, Lord, you prove yourself so faithful that everything you promise will in fact come true. So, Lord, we ask that if we are discouraged in our walk of faith in this very moment because of whatever reason, we pray, Lord, that we would know without a shadow of a doubt that nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So, Lord, we pray that you would strengthen our faith. We pray, Lord, by your Spirit, you would help us look again and again to these characters in the Bible, to what you have done, most importantly, to Israel and to your people, your church, so that we would have great confidence that what you have started, you will, without a shadow of a doubt, fulfill. Lord, we thank you that as we persevere, we can have great faith, great trust, great confidence, knowing that you preserve us to the end. In your name we pray. Amen.